Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Don't Praise the Machine. This is episode number 106. I'm one of your hosts, I'm Alexander Holland, and as always, sat digitally next to me in a cave in Melbourne, Australia, somewhere, in a basement, in an attic. We never know. He's always in a secret location. It's got to be the one called... John Maloney. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm in my crawl space. <laughs> this is... That's where you have the most comfort. Yeah, that's right. I can just forget the troubles of the world. In here, it's just a world of podcasting and non-alcoholic stout. There's nothing else I need to think when about. When you get a bit anxious, your partner Jacinta says, John, I can tell you're a little bit wound up. Yeah. She gives you your special comfort blanket, <laughs> one of your plush toys, mm. one of your stuffed mm. animals. And she says, why don't you take Blanky and Baba, <laughs> the stuffed toy elephant, and why don't you just hop in the crawl space for a couple of hours? And you go, oh, thanks. Thanks for this. <laughs> then, she, then she goes to work. I was watching the intro to Baba. Did you did you ever see Baba? Was that on? Yeah, when you were I don't know if I ever really boy? watched it. It might have passed me by, but it was certainly I was certainly aware of it. It's popped up on Instagram the intro to it, which I remember very distinctly because my brother Ned was born eight years mm-hmm. after me. He was born in ninety mm-hmm. one. So Baba was more a show that he would watch, mm. and it would always be on. And the beautiful theme to Baba would go na 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 na. And that's going to help everybody's memories out there with the story of the entitled French elephant (laughs) royalty. (laughs) Is that right? They were like, I can't remember. I think Papa was a, he ruled (laughs) over some sort of, I think he was like, they were a royal family. Oh. Or some shit. An elephant kingdom. Like it was a bunch, it was like a, it was, um, it was a bunch of anthropomorphic animals. Yeah. Like, like royalty that, that ruled over. Okay. Some, some kind it, of. It was just him. I don't like this at all. It was just him. There was a whole season where he was just hand wringing about whether to go to his father's coronation. Yeah. And then Baba's <laughs> brother had to pay millions of dollars because he had slept with one of Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficked <laughs> victims, which was, that was a dark episode yeah. of Baba. They, they were quite subversive. Baba said, why did you have to fly to that island with yeah. John Cree Ongstein? <laughs> That's right. He's like perverted rhino uncle. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein's character was like played by some sort of pig. Just <laughs> it's this kind of wealthy pig that lived in a house in New York next, <laughs> next to Central Park. <laughs> uh, do you want to start with a funny story? What a funny what story. What a just, funny story. What a funny story. <laughs> just steal all of Alan Partridge's bits. Uh, sure. I haven't told you this yet. Yeah. So I was in Istanbul a couple of weeks ago, as I mentioned, and I had to fly back to Berlin. Mm-hmm. And as a lot of people will be familiar with, I, I'm one of those people that as soon as you put me on a flight, mm. it doesn't matter if I've had the, the greatest sleep ever the night before, <laughs> the most perfect sleep, the kind of sleep that my Fitbit would say, you get 100% for that sleep, Alexander. Mm. You could put me on a flight two hours later and I'm out like a light really? as soon as I'm in. Yeah, as soon as the engine starts up, I cannot keep my eyes open. Mm. I just have a kip on the flight. So that happened. That's a great trick. I'm never very good at sleeping on planes or really. Yeah, I got on yep. the 
the captain says, okay, everybody, we're flying this plane. Yeah. And then I just like, I'm out like a light. Mm. And the other thing that I tend to do when I'm taking flights now is I, I like to know how long until the flight is going to land. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll know how long the flight is. So in this case, between Istanbul and Berlin, it's about two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. So before I fell asleep, I set my countdown mm. two and a half hours. Mm. And then I was just pretty much in and out of sleep the whole flight. And then I, I woke up a wasn't sure quite how long I'd been asleep for. Yeah. I checked my watch and it said, okay, 30 minutes left. Mm. And I was like, sweet, been asleep for a couple of hours. Yeah. And missed most of the flight. I'm looking forward to landing. And <clears throat> I looked out the window uh, and there was an unusual amount of ocean for Europe mm-hmm. and for well, the part of Europe that I'm used to landing mm-hmm. in, which is Berlin. And I was like... <laughs> I don't remember there being ocean when there's like I've taken a lot of flights in and out of like Berlin. Yeah, I don't recall there being a ton of ocean with tw- with thirty <laughs> minutes to land. And I started to get a little bit anxious and scratching my head, going, "Okay, so how bad at geography am I? What's going on yeah. here?" And then ten minutes pass, and there's only more ocean. And now, uh, now I'm noticing that the ocean has a lot of kind of shipping ships in it yeah. so, so it's a kind of active port and i'm going hmm this is pretty weird <laughs> and then i'm lo- I'm looking at the land mass that is kind of you know th- there is like a land mass around the ocean yeah. where it's sort of circling okay and i noticed that the buildings don't look german at all <laughs> like i know german germany has quite boring looking kind of buildings yeah. from a from an airplane it's very rigid and these are looking a little bit more kind of like a sun, like people that are in the sun, yeah, a bit more. yeah. These type, like when you're landing in Greece or something, right. there's a kind of Mediterranean-y sun person, yeah, uh, building. And I'm going, okay, now I'm starting to get a little bit worried, and I'm starting to think, now what's happened here? Mm. Because have I got on the wrong plane? Has something <laughs> happened? Because because then the pilot goes. I'm thinking, okay, maybe my watch is wrong, mm. and then the pilot goes. With like 15 minutes on my watch, the pilot goes, cabin crew, prepare for landing. Oh, what? And I'm still seeing, it's all ocean. Wow. It's ocean and a tiny little, and a bit of a landmass with these kind of sun looking buildings on it. And so I'm thinking, okay, so I've either got on the wrong flight. <laughs> Shit. Or, or we're land, or we're, so I don't know what the fuck's yeah. going on. So. So I've got, I pull out my phone mm. and I'm looking at the ticket going, surely I haven't bought like the wrong ticket and then magically gone to the wrong gate yeah, or yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. what's going on. And then, and then I'm doing like the, then I'm opening Google maps and like hoping that it will connect to the <laughs> GPS. So I know where the fuck I am. Cause I'm thinking, am I about to land in fucking Baghdad yeah, yeah, or yeah. something? Yeah. And then I turn to the oh, boy next to me yeah. and I say to the boy, Excuse me, boy, but I have a very unusual question for you. And he goes, yeah, what is it? And I go, this plane is landing in Berlin, right? And he goes, no, it's not. And I go, (laughs) "What?" I go, please, boy, please tell me what's going on. (laughs) Wasn't this meant to land in Berlin? And he goes, yeah, it was meant to land in Berlin, but there's been some kind of technical issue and we've turned around and we're landing back at Istanbul Airport again. All right. And I was like, I just couldn't stop laughing. And I said, dude, I missed every single announcer. The pilot had announced this. Yeah. 
and everybody else on board knew what was going on except me. So, and it did kind of start to make sense because there were some kind of panicked people that I was noticing, like oh. walking up. Like I'm fine with all that kind of shit. Yeah, but um, like panicked. But you could by, tell uh, the possibility that there was something wrong with the plane. There were people that looked a bit panicked that there was something wrong with the plane, mm. and then there was another girl. There's always people on flights that have, I, uh, you know, they'll they'll have an event or something yeah. that's dependent on the flight. Like, you know, maybe they could only get that was the only flight they could get mm. to attend their friend's birthday, mm-hmm. and or, or or they needed a connecting flight yeah, or something like sure. this. So that's all out the window. Yeah. So there was a girl like walking up and down crying. Oh no. But uh, and I could, but I was just like, oh, you know, she probably, I don't know, maybe a boyfriend broke up with her on the flight or something. <laughs> and the boy next to me was very low. I say boy, he was probably nineteen. Yeah, he was a Turkish guy that lived in um, Berlin, and then he was explaining to me. He's very cute. His mum didn't speak any English. Uh-huh. He spoke perfect English. This guy, and um, his so his mother was kind of asking. I couldn't stop laughing, and the mother was like talking to him, going, "What fucks up with this guy?" And the mother's going on. The mother was asking him to ask me if I was afraid because the mother was quite a nervous flyer, uh, and I was like, "No, nah, I'm fine. Like, whatever. Mm. This is gonna be. This is gonna be cool." But um, that's a pretty weird experience mm. to wake up and yeah, that's very disorienting. And think I'm supposed to be landing in, but am I about to have a Kevin McAllister experience? Yeah, where I land in New York <laughs> and I have to go to the hotel and just live it up for a bunch of weeks with Tim Curry <laughs> as with, with Tim Curry and Rob Schneider as my best concierges. I got to trick him into giving me cheese pizzas and limousines. I was excited because I thought that was about to be the day for me. Yeah, you were gonna. Try aftershave for the first time and bounce, <laughs> bounce up and down on a mattress. <laughs> That's actually the second time that I've had a flight turn around mid-flight in the last four years. <laughs> I was once flying from back from London to Berlin, and whilst we were in the air, yeah. like Temp- Tempelhof Airport discovered an unexploded Second World War munition. Oh my god! And the which is wow. like not it's not uncommon at all over here. Like mm-hmm. not so much at airports, but every few mm-hmm. months or a few times a mm-hmm. year in the news, somebody will mm-hmm. discover an unexploded Second World War bomb that needs. Because wow. you can imagine there was quite a few dropped around here. Yeah, sure. Because uh, yeah. boy, boy, did they misbehave over here, and so uh, they made they, <laughs> they dropped a lot of shit to try and say, "Hey, use cut yeah. that out." We've told, we've tried to resolve this, like gentlemen. It's obviously not worked. <laughs> You're forcing our hand. Yeah, there's not a lot of not a lot of bombs in Melbourne. Yeah, so so uh, I had to fly back to London once because the pilot just said we can't land because they have mm. to like check this bomb out. Wow. Yeah. So I'm real. You. That's why I didn't care when the boy said, "Yeah, we're gonna have to turn around." And I said, "Man, once one time I was flying to Japan and we had to we to Tokyo. We had to turn around because there was a kraken on the on the <laughs> on the wing." <laughs> Al, I've been contemplating something this week that's come up in the news. It's um, been a fairly prominent story or did did a couple of days in the news cycle here in Australia and probably is a an issue that's come up a bit overseas as well. And that is uh, the issue of people cheating at the 
Paralympics yes. and in, in disabled sports generally. So there was an article recently where the guy that led the International Paralympic Committee for about 15 years, he, he resigned or retired in 2019. This guy, Xavier Gonzalez, said that this problem, he can't deny that it exists, it does exist. And then uh, in Australia, they interviewed somebody else who was a, a kind of a professional classifier of athletes. Yep. Uh, and her name was Jane Buckley, and she was talking about you know, the scale of the problem. And then they interviewed athletes who were attesting to this being an issue. And I find it really interesting because, I mean, I have talked a little bit on the show before about how I used to myself have some involvement in disabled sports. I used to be a swimmer and I was in the, for a brief period in the Paralympic team, although I didn't go to the Paralympics because I'd sort of stopped by then. But, um, I did undergo several of the kind of tests that they mentioned in these articles. Yeah. So to, they basically know where to place you. <clears throat> exactly. They basically, they classify you based on your, you know, physical capacities and incapacities. So for me, it was all swimming based and I was in a different class for breaststroke, for example, than I was for freestyle because there mm. were things that you need to do to, you know, with your legs when you're doing breaststroke, which I couldn't really do. So I was in a slightly lower class and then I was in a different class again for butterfly. And I remember like at one point I was brought up or brought down a class, no, brought up a class for breaststroke, which meant that, uh, you know, my, my disability was regarded as being less severe than it was initially, mm. which I, I guess I just took on the chin, but it would have been like, had I been super serious, it would have been quite a significant thing because it, it limited my prospects in a sense it increased the stiffness of the competition of course I guess. yeah yeah and uh and so it brought back all those memories of participating in this kind of testing and the occasional controversies that broke out but that was really nothing in those days because i think the profile of a lot of the sports has increased the amount of money that you can get like the the, the very possibility of making money through sponsorship deals which didn't really exist in the 90s to anything like the same extent that it does for the for say elite paralympians that might make a bit of a get a bit of traction in the media now etc yeah so maybe that's maybe that's part of why it's happening but i i mean <laughs> i kind of enjoy it for a couple of reasons uh one is i think it's kind of darkly funny that there are people who are competing as able-bodied athletes in other sports who in in some cases will then decide, I guess, because they realize I'm never going to get anywhere as an able-bodied <laughs> competitor in that sport to compete in disabled sports in a particular event. So and can you just downplay... make, make, sorry, just to, just to clarify, John, for me, yeah, sure. Can you explain to me how the cheating, how this particular, when they say, oh yeah, there is cheating taking place, what does that yeah. look like? Well, it can mean basically people I guess, gaming this testing system in different ways. So that could mean <clears throat> feigning a level of, um, you know, feigning an inability to move or uh, use a certain muscle in a particular way that it needs to be used whilst one is being tested. And then, uh, and then you know, they're not, they're not the easiest things to, I mean, you know, they do what they can and it's fairly high level. So they're not the easiest things to fake. But I think it's po possible to 
probably possible to get like a diagnosis from somebody who might be sympathetic to you or might be less credible um, that supports being classified in a particular way. And obviously it depends a lot on the sport. But there was this guy, for example, who I think was a professional, I don't know, he was a cyclist or a runner, and then he was um, competing in a different sport, but it's kind of broadly related in the Paralympics and, uh, or in the, in a, in a disabled world championships competition or something like that. And when it was kind of an open secret among some that he had, that he had, uh, participated as an able-bodied athlete for years, (laughs) but he completely able-bodied cyclist, something like that. Yeah. So I can bring it up if you want to, if you want the details, but Something like that. And then he was, he did have, he had suffered some kind of injury. So it wasn't as though he was just a completely able-bodied person in this particular case who was just feigning a disability. Although I think there have been accusations that that might've happened as well. So he was an example, but he was an example of somebody who was, was mildly impaired in a particular way, but there was a real question as to whether that was relevant to, uh, the event, and there was, I guess, a, a further, more pertinent question about whether he was potentially exaggerating the extent of that impairment in order to participate in competition with people, some of whom just couldn't have participated in the kinds of events that he had spent years competing in. Would he have been? Was he a was he a, a professional cyclist, or a, he competed as a cyclist and then he had an injury? It's funny. I'm thinking, John. I guess you, I'd never thought of this because I would, but I guess you can compete in Paralympics after you've had some kind of accident or injury, which is impaired. Because I've always just kind of thought about Paralympics, perhaps even because I've, I've known you and you've yeah. always been the, my kind of example, yeah. is that I always assume that people that were born with disabilities were the people who would be in these events. But it's all, you, there's, all there's also people that compete that have been injured yeah. post birth that's right it's quite common like i i also played uh wheelchair basketball for a few years and that's commonly played by people who have had spinal injuries because they've been in car accidents and things like that so you get these guys who are like you know adults when they become when they become disabled and then they go on to compete so that's not on that's not unusual but this guy his name's Stuart jones represented australia in in cycling at the paralympics and world championships Uh, he, he clipped a parked car and crashed years ago and he sustained an incomplete spinal cord injury. Um, but he, so he was injured. He was in fact told he might never walk again, but he, he recovered to a degree and he was eventually back on two wheeled bike racing competitively with local cycling clubs. And, uh, the, the three wheel trike division, which is a disabled sports event is strictly reserved for athletes who can't ride a two-wheeled bike because of a lack of balance and or severe restrictions in pedaling. And it says athletes have a responsibility to know and comply with the rules. Uh, It says for three years after his injury, Jones raced a two-wheeled bike, climbing up the competitive grades in his cycling club and even winning (laughs) races. Despite his skills on the two-wheeled bike, Jones began exploring whether he could compete in paracycling as early as 2015. So pretty soon after he was injured. And then he yeah. told his partner, who's obviously come forward, uh, <laughs> that he believed he could win more easily in three-wheeled paracycling class. And then, 
she said that she asked him, why are you writing this? And he said, well, it's the only way I can get into paracycling because the normal bicycle classifications are too fast. So, you know, uh, he then competed in two-wheel and three-wheel events interchangeably. And then um, somebody who was a fellow cycling club member recalled competing against him and saying that he was a very strong rider. And then <laughs> there were kind of events where, oh, and then this this bit I particularly like. So his, his partner said that she went to an event, a paracycling event with him, and she noticed him putting on a limp and she said, are you okay? You're limping. Oh no. And he said, I, I'm at paracycling. I need to look disabled. Right? <laughs> and, and then somebody else mentioned something about, um, about him being offered a spot on this team. And she said, uh, but he can ride a two wheeled bike. And this person responded, no, he can't. And then he said, <laughs> he basically made a sign to her, like, shut the fuck up. And, uh, and, and so, you know, it must've been this situation where he, in his mind, he thought, well, I do have a disability and, yeah. and so, and I want to win medals and the yeah. other, you know, so let's just kind of fudge it. But I mean, there's also examples I think of people who are, who've basically claimed to have disabilities, which they turned out not to have. And again, they might, they might have something wrong with them, but then they'll, They'll say it's cerebral palsy when it's not, for example, in order to get classified in particular ways. And I, and I do kind of, I mean, I just like, you know, stories about people being audaciously shithouse. And I just kind of think like, <laughs> I just think, how is this person, like, imagine you're at, you're at the starting line, you look down the line and you see a bunch of people with genuine disabilities who have gotten to an elite level in their sport and you go, Jesus, I am a real piece of shit. Like I should not be, how do you not go? I really shouldn't be here. But, but then I think, I mean, the other thing that I like is that some of the, some of the people who are doing this are, as I said, just people with disabilities who are exaggerating the extent of those disabilities masking abilities that they maybe have that would get them kicked up a class, things like that. And I quite enjoy that development on a personal level because, <laughs> because I guess, cause I, I grew up in a sort of world where, uh, people with disabilities were, were sort of difficult to criticize yes. because they were put on this sort of moral pedestal and they were widely associated with words like champion and inspiration hero yeah. yeah hero and people used to you know try and use those words probably still occasionally do t again towards me and i find that particularly grating uh and they used to say they used to say things like that about me all the time and that's maybe why i'm a bit of a prick because i you know just <laughs> i like to defy expectations and assert my agency but be that as it may i, I like this kind of development because it, I think it just presents us all with an opportunity to reckon with the fact that these are human beings who are <laughs> as good and as bad as the rest of us. And that if you put a particular group of people on a moral pedestal, then you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. And I like, I like the kind of process of um, humanization that occurs when you get people who you know, people might want to be a bit, people might want to 
I just I just like to see people squirm a bit when they think like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, he's being a, he's being, <laughs> yeah, he's done the wrong thing, but I don't know, I don't know what to, I just, can we not talk about this? And, <laughs> and but it's uh, like, yeah, it's like you said to me, you said, you said it's like, yeah, well, he, he, he it looks like maybe he has shot his wife to death in yeah. the bathroom in South Africa. Yeah, that's right. But remember when he, remember when he had those <laughs> blades? Oh, that was pretty inspiring. Can't we just can't we just let it go? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> so yeah, I I for one welcome this new era of more more morally complex portraits of disabled people in our public conversation, <laughs> and and uh, and I think it's kind of. I mean, I would have, to be honest, I would have taken it as potentially a. Uh, side effect of a positive development in the sport. If when I was young, people with uh, without disabilities were trying to get into my sport, which nobody was doing, <laughs> and because and nobody thought, oh, I, maybe if I get really good at this, I can make some money out of it or get a public <laughs> profile. It just was not on the cards, <laughs> or I would have stuck to it. If there was a chance of me becoming famous, I would never have stopped swimming. But yeah, uh, and getting like a massive. Uncle Toby's contract. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We talked last week on the show about about uh, sport sports endorsements of breakfast cereals, which I would have Wheaties, been John on than, a Wheaties box. Yeah, I would have been more than happy to put my hand up for that and just uh, just just you know kind of do my bit for the um, glucose lobby. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I also think more broadly that. Um, that I don't know. There's something satisfying about the fact that these that these people can be called out in a way that is kind of refreshingly straightforward. I think we live in a time where people sometimes make spurious claims to hardship. I mean, we talked about Prince Harry at the top of the show, who's a kind of a classic example. Who you know he can he can spin a narrative about how hard done by he is, and he has some he has certainly suffered in some ways, but he is also a prince. And or you know you get some musician who says that they came from nothing, and then it turns out that their uncle invented music or whatever. You know? <laughs> and, and, and but and there's always a kind of back and forth when that happens, and that's hard to sort of pin people down. But I think I just like the simplicity of being able to say, "You said that you had a disability, and I can. Pr- <laughs> we all can prove that that isn't the case." <laughs> What's this guy's name? What, um, has there been a reckoning? His name is Stuart Jones, and okay. um, and there's also somebody else mentioned in in one of the articles that I looked at who kind of uh, yeah it was it was somebody who was also sort of exaggerating or possibly misconstruing their condition, and uh, her name was Amanda Fowler, and she's since gone on to change her name and kind of gone to ground i think but uh which, which is probably advisable i would say because <laughs> it would be i mean there's one thing for that cyclist it's one thing for that cyclist man who's born able-bodied suffered some kind of car accident and then is claiming to be more disabled than he is mm. that that's a that's uncomfortable but then it would be because I, I, when you mentioned this to me last week mm. I was thinking that what was happening, which I'm sure is happening, mm. was also that people who were born with disabilities are yeah. pretending to be more disabled than they are. That, yeah, in that's order definitely to happening. go down a class. Yeah, that's definitely happening. 
Which uh, is, that becomes very uncomfortable to be like, hang on, mate. Yeah. I've got something to say about this. Yeah. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? And then you're you supposed think, to be a champion and you're exactly. sullying. And instead you're like some sort of asshole in a Ben Stiller movie pretending to have a disability <laughs> that, you, that you don't have. <laughs> um, but yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, like I say, a more, a time when we, when we, uh, the, the way we depict and understand people with disabilities just a little bit more nuanced and morally complicated. Another thing that is a bit of a sad event that's happened mm-hmm. during the week, um, but something I think that is tied to happy memories for us and for a lot of our the Don't Praise the Community concerns, uh, your namesake, Al Jaffe, yeah. um, who some of our listeners might recognize that name. Um, and Al Jaffe passed away on the 10th of April, uh, so so at time of recording just a couple of days ago, and uh, he is known uh, in the kind of comic book community and I think, you know, known more broadly in pop culture uh, for having a very, very long association with Mad Magazine and mm. for being in particular the inventor of the back cover fold-in that became a kind of, yes. um, that became this long-running thing uh that mad was synonymous with and i yeah i was so i was reading about him and i and i went down a bit of a rabbit hole because i mean i used to get mad magazine when i was a kid we used to sometimes i remember like on family holidays when i was you know we'd do like long car trips and so i'd get a couple of magazines like comics and things like that to read in the back yeah. of the car and why. and there would often there would often be a spoof of whatever was in the cultural zeitgeist at the time so you exactly. in 1993 you might see a kind of parody a big colorful parody on the front yeah. of like jurassic park and that's right inside there would be some kind of parody of jurassic park <laughs> exactly the what me of... worry guy whose name i always forget yeah yeah the, yeah the, the mad magazine guy would be sort of interacting with a dinosaur in a strange way and there'd <laughs> yeah, be quite right. good depictions of the actors and actors in Jurassic Park. Exactly. So so for anyone who who's not familiar or who needs a refresher, the the way the fold-ins would work is you would uh get to the back cover of the magazine and the inside of the back cover there'd be a um picture that was a kind of cryptic, often very detailed image which had a bit of might have a bit of text on it um and might have some characters kind of doing absurdist things, but often the meaning of it wasn't really clear until you folded in the kind of uh, the the edge of the cover so that you basically folded the image um i guess longitudinally in half so uh, vertically in half and uh 
it would reveal basically a new image. So, you know, there might be sort of two faces on different sides of the image and then those, those faces would fuse into one face and you would realize that um, there was a kind of secret image that, that was initially hidden from view and whatever text there was might say something completely different. And it would, again, it would be like a kind of amusing poke at current events or whatever. And uh, that was, that I think appeared in every edition of the magazine from about um, 1964 until 2020. And all of it probably has appeared since then, but all of those um, were, I think, done by Jaffe. And Wow. He died at the age of 102. So by the time he got- Holy shit. He yeah. was a centenarian. Yeah. So by the time, not only that, but but yeah, by the time he started doing this, which was 1964, he was older, he was older than us. And, uh, wow. And, uh, and then he continued doing it. And um, the, last, the last time he did it, the final one that he designed appeared in- the June 2019 issue, but his last fold in to be published, which was a personal farewell to readers, appeared in August 2020, in the August 2020 issue. And he'd prepared it six years before then in 2014, but uh, he'd asked initially for it to be published after his death. And instead oh. it, pub- it was published when, at the age of 99, he uh, announced his retirement from the magazine. And so they wow. published this as a, they published this as a as a kind of tribute fold in, and uh, and he and he basically basically only used computers for um, typographic maneuvers. So I guess to kind of set text and things like that, and make um, make certain aspects of that uh, fold in sort of easier to design. But he did them by hand, uh, except for that. And so each one took about. Uh, two weeks to sketch and finalize and he wow and he said i'm working he said i'm working on a hard flat board i can't fold it that's why my planning has to be so correct and he said i never see the finished painting folded until it's printed in the magazine i guess i have the kind of visual mind where i can see the two sides without actually putting them together so it's not as though he had a cover in front of him and was like screwing around to get the fold in right he was just doing this by eye i guess and design uh and by hand predominantly which is amazing and uh and uh you know people now somebody who was the mads art director was commenting he said i think part of the brilliance of the fold in is lost on the younger generations who are so used to photoshop and being able to do stuff like that on a computer because obviously that's not how he worked because he was a centenarian but uh um yeah so i'm i mean i'm kind of in awe of that somebody just doing something like it was already by the time I was born it mad magazine had already been doing that for 18 years and then they just continued doing it uh until I guess well he continued doing it until 2020 Um, wow which is pretty amazing so so yeah shout out to Al Jaffe big Jaffs I also read that um that at his funeral they'll be folding the corpse in and that and that a little birdie has told me that when they fold the corpse up in front of everybody they'll just maneuver it so it spells out the phrase what me worry <laughs> and we love you jeff yeah. for that yeah. he asked for a, a folded a folding casket
Thank you so much, everybody. That was episode number 106. Before we go, want to give a special birthday message to a very special Don't Praise a friend of the podcast, Claire O'Shea. Yeah. Turns 40 this <gasps> tomorrow. It's uh, We're recording this on Thursday the 13th. Tomorrow morning, I will board a red-eye flight bound for London town to go and spend the weekend in London with Claire and all of her London besties. Mm. We're going to celebrate 40 years of Claire O'Shea. John, what are some of your best memories of Claire O'Shea? Oh, man, so many. We used to, you and I, in... So we went to school with Claire. You and yeah, me went to we school, went to school we were, with We've Claire. known Claire f- since the late 90s. And uh, we used to spend many, many hours stuffing around in Claire's backyard. Uh, in our early 20s, I remember I have m- many fond memories of uh, running around that backyard behaving silly and <laughs> uh, and having having lots of conversations and up at Bel Air. And also, you, you and I used to catch, she was very obliging and we used to occasionally just get a bit bored and frustrated. So we'd ask Claire, can you just basically drive us to the beach? Or- yeah. Can you she was the f- she was the first one to get a driver's license. The <laughs> yeah. three of us, and, and so we'd say to her, "Can you drive us all somewhere? Can you drive us all somewhere?" Like <laughs> there's a couple of times where I felt like we just drove around, and then probably just like absolutely got, got a Coke Zero from the or they didn't probably didn't have Coke Zero then. They got it. We probably had original recipe Coca Cola in those days, <laughs> and uh, and uh, we still had cocaine in it. Um, I- <laughs> to get that from the servo and then we drive <laughs> drive around the suburbs of Adelaide and it was great. One time we drove all the way to Goolwa. We I remember we, it was you, me and her, I'm pretty <laughs> yeah. sure you were there. I think we're all at her house and I yeah. think we got, I don't know why I remember this so well, but I remember, I feel like we all got a massive family size Hawaiian pizza <laughs> and as we were eating it, we were like, oh, let's go to Goolwa. <laughs> like it was a joke because yeah. it was so far and it was night time. <laughs> And then we were like, we're young and reckless and yeah. needing to unwind. I guess nothing can last forever, forever, forever. <laughs> so, and then cut to us, <laughs> cut to us driving to the beach. Me and a John from school <laughs> had a band and we tried real hard. And then, uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, so we just like, fuck it. And then we all drove to Goolwa for the night. Yeah. Maybe, actually, maybe we got the ham and pineapple pizza at Goolwa. Maybe that's why I'm connecting it. Yeah, okay. I don't know. Anyway, I want to say happy ham and pineapple pizza <laughs> to... <laughs> what, a tri- what a tribute. I want to say happy Goolwa to my friend pineapple pizza. <laughs> 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 I want to say happy 40th, Claire O'Shea. I'm going to see you real soon. Happy birthday, Claire. <laughs> about the fear that comes with thinking that you've got on the wrong flight and are about to land in Yemen. No amount of tomato juice and peanuts is going to unfuck this holiday. And hasn't it been fun talking about the cheating scandal rocking the Paralympics? No amount of-
amount of tomato juice and peanuts is going to unfuck this sporting scandal. And we've loved paying tribute to Mad Magazine folding creator and centenarian we'll miss you. Al Jaffe. No amount of tomato juice and peanuts could ever replace Al Jaffe. As always, I've been one of your hosts. I go by the name Alexander Holland. And as always, I'm sat digitally next to my number one pod pirate. He's got to be the one called John Maloney. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody, as you do every single week. Don't forget to stay prayed up, and we'll see you next week at the podcast.